and welcome to the Rocks and Roots podcast. I am one of your hosts, Tumbles, and with me as always is... Cranky, and we are venturing into new territory for us on the podcast and then for us as adventurers. Uh, we just spoke with a bike packer, so we learned a lot this episode. Yeah, Frank... Frank Hughes, or Frankie Wild, as he likes to be called. I've known Frankie for about four years now. Uh, we met at our gym. He was working at the gym, and he was actually starting his training for his cross-country bike touring trips that we fully get into in this episode. So this will be part one of two uh, because I was nerding out. It was a pleasure for me to talk bike stuff, which I have not done in about four years. So I kind of nerded out and took up some time. But uh, hopefully for you hikers who are not as familiar, that portion was actually helpful. That's right. Yeah, we only got through the first half of his first trip. So there is plenty more to talk about. And we're getting into some of the juicy juicy details of his trips in the next episode. So as always, we're going to plug ourselves first, and then we're going to go right into the episode. Find us on the gram, rocks underscore and underscore roots underscore pod. Find us also on TikTok is rocks underscore roots underscore podcast. If you're listening to this, then you're either listening to, to it on Apple. Leave us some stars, leave us a comment. Or you're listening to us on YouTube, which is our newest venture, and I'm uploading those episodes onto the YouTubes. Anything else, Greg? That's it. Enjoy the episode. Well, good evening, Frankie. It is so lovely to chat with you this evening. It's, it's great to be with you both. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this since uh, since we discussed it. Oh, fantastic. Now, bikepacking is totally a new avenue for us since we talk about running, we talk about hiking, and we talk about backpacking. But okay. I've been following you since you started your cross-country journeys. How many years ago was your first one? So I left on my first trip June of 2019. Okay, um, so al almost three years ago at this point. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> it, it, it is, because in, in some ways it doesn't feel that long at all, and in other ways it feels like it's been quite a long time, yeah. No, oh, don't we know that? I mean, we were thinking um, about our, yes. first, our first backpacking trip was already f almost four years ago. Oh, wow. Right, 2018? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So before we get into your journeys, can you please tell us how you got into bikepacking and what drew you to it and your history? Okay. Um, and your full name. <laughs> so, so, so my full name, because my, many people actually don't know this, uh, is Frank Hughes the third. Oh. I am of the third. And uh, I don't I don't share that with people very often because it always makes me feel like oh man my name hasn't been popular for a century but but um, but yeah that's my real name Frank Hughes it's not Frankie Wild as much as I might like it to be sometimes but a story for another day so how do I get into bike pack 
I think before before we can get into that, there's sort of a, a preliminary clarification that's that's necessary because the bikepacking or or adventure cycling community gets very hung up on terminology, and I think I think a lot of it's ego driven. Um, Sounds like the hiking community. Yeah, it's 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 interesting how you know similar personalities end up in similar circles. So what most people think of when they think of bikepacking is long distance rides that are mostly or entirely off of public road. A really good example of bikepacking would be the GDMBR, the Great Divide Mountain Biking Route, which is 2,700 miles. Um, you're basically riding the spine of the Rocky Mountains and it's 90% off pavement. Wow. That is not what I do. What what I do is mostly on pavement bicycle touring. I would definitely love to bike pack someday. The bike that I have right now isn't built for that. It's not to say that it couldn't be, but generally sort of bike packing, bicycle touring, that all sort of falls under the greater adventure cycling category. So I guess that's a roundabout way of, of sort of prefacing my answer. Um, in terms of how I came to this, I can remember the first time I rode a bike. I was probably six or or seven years old. The first time I rode a bike without training wheels, because I had ridden tricycles before that. And um, I remember how proud and excited I was going down the street in front of my grandparents' house. And from that moment on, I always really enjoyed riding a bicycle. It was, you know, going fast. There was that element of, of, of excitement. There was, you know, a little bit of the element of freedom. And I did it, I did it a lot in my childhood. Uh, and then into my early 20s, I kind of fell into taking riding a lot more seriously. And like a lot of people, it started for me with wanting to get in better shape. But, you know, after only... You can only do the, the same duck pond bike path by your house so many times before your sights are aimed higher and you go, how far can I go? How fast can I go? And um, I downloaded an app, Ride with GPS. Or no, no, this was before then. This was Map My Ride. Map My Ride. Yes. Promoted Map My Ride because they, they do everything, right? They yeah. do Map My Run, which is probably yep. even more popular. So I downloaded their app in like the spring of 2011. And I just started planning out my own routes in my area and they got longer and longer and longer. And all of a sudden I was riding uh, up to 100 miles a week. I, you know, it's, I've always told people like, I, like, I didn't work very hard in my 20s. And that's the reason that I don't look like I'm 34. And I think a big part of the reason I didn't work very hard in my 20s was I was too busy riding my bicycle. <laughs> Makes sense. Um and uh, so I did that by myself for a couple of years. And then I get into my late 20s and um, I have this younger cousin, Quinn. And riding with Quinn, we started riding together at uh, the beginning of 2016. And that really started to take things to the next level because Quinn is, Quinn is almost your ideal cyclist. He's six feet tall, weighs maybe 140 pounds. And he was nine years younger than me. So he just had this limitless supply of energy. He could climb faster than me. He could sprint faster than me. He was every bit ambitious as I was. And um, it gets to the point where we're riding together two or 300 miles a week, every week. 
And I'm planning these longer and longer rides so that, you know, we can continue to challenge ourselves. And we just, we never run out of that desire to ride new places. And, and for me, it was in doing those, those bigger and bigger routes, 50 miles, 55 miles, 60 miles, 65 miles, that I feel like riding started to become even less about fitness and competition and a lot more about exploration. Because at this point, I had been hit on a bicycle in 2014. And after that, I stopped riding in New Jersey for a while because hmm. uh, I, I was scared of being hit again. I'd love to give you some details of the accident. I have no memory of it. Oh, I, okay. Well, there goes that question. Yeah. Um, wow. The guys at the bike shop who looked at the damage to my bike say that I got hit and that the police report that followed the accident that the driver is lying. I don't know. It's at this point so far in the past, it doesn't matter. And I don't have any long-term injuries. So it is what it is. But that scared me enough that I started riding in Rockland and Orange County, New York, uh, to get away from the traffic. So how and far would you have to travel, like, to drive there? So I started I started driving up to Slotesburg oh, okay. and West Milford when I lived in the suburbs. My parents owned a house in, in Glenrock, New Jersey. So I would drive about 30 to 35 minutes to get to the place where I would park my car, take my bike out, and um, go do rides. That's and then bad. eventually, okay. I kind of ran out of roads that I didn't know. And now I was driving all the way up to Warwick, New York, uh, at about an hour at a time to go and take even longer rides that would take you further north up to uh, the Black Dirt Country, Pine Island, and, and um, all that beautiful land where they grow onions and garlic and uh yeah so so uh, when i would go and do bike rides from like my late 20s onwards they were like they were like day-long investments because at some points i'd be driving up to an hour to get up to where i was going to ride i would never go up there without riding for at least three three and a half hours and then drive home an hour mm -hmm. um <laughs> this sounds very familiar yeah it's it's i i can't imagine it's that much different than than what you do, because if you want to see the really good stuff, this you know the the nature that's not developed, that's not spoiled, you got to get in the car and go. Yes, oh, yeah, definitely. So before we go very much further, can you just? I know we did this in the intro, but can you just give us a very very quick resume? Like I, my longest ride was across the country, this many miles, like that type of thing. Absolutely. I have done three tours. My first tour was from Minneapolis, Minnesota to Seattle, Washington. We rode through several national parks and I was on the road for 66 days and covered 3,087 miles. Wow. My second tour uh, was in the winter of 2020 and I started in Austin, Texas and rode all the way to San Diego, California. I went through four states. I spent a week in Mexico in the coastal city of Ensenada and I covered 2,500 miles in 47 days. Wow. My, my most recent trip was in the summer of 2021. I rode from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania 
to Atlanta, Georgia, along the Great Allegheny Passage Bicycle Trail, through Shenandoah National Park, along the Blue Ridge Parkway, across the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and then down to Atlanta. And I did that in 36 days. That was 1,300 miles, give or take. In so that 30. one was just a, a quick trip. <laughs> I, I guess so. It's, yes. Uh, they've, they've gotten progressively shorter, which is not what I would have wanted. But, you know. No, the trip through uh, Shenandoah and the Smokies, that sounds incredible. I'm going to rework our outline here a little bit. But um, so thank you for that, first of all. And then I'm very glad that you gave us a distinction between bike packing and bike touring. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming that bike packing, if it is off road, uh, uses a mountain bike and then bike touring. If you're on skyline drive and, and roads, a road bike or like a hybrid at the very least. Yeah, it's you're close. Okay. Um, bike packing bikes generally have, you know, depending on the, the severity of the kind of trails you're doing, because some people bike pack on things as simple as unpaved roads. Other people like to bike pack on nothing short of single track trails, the kind of trails that people hike on. Yes. Um, and in those sorts of instances, you're riding with either a front shock or a full suspension mountain bike. And bike, bike packing bikes are very specific in that their geometry is designed to make them very stable. They're designed to carry a lot more weight than the rider. And they're supposed to be very strong and hopefully relatively easy to service and not in need of frequent service. Give, to give you a, a, a good quick example, most modern bikes sold now that are not Walmart bikes are being sold with disc brakes. Yes. Similar to what you find on a car. They now make for bicycles hydraulic disc brakes, fluid pressure-based disc brakes. On touring bikes, probably now you can find hydraulic systems. But on my bike, I have the largest mechanical uh, cable-based disc brakes they make because it is very hard to field surface, field service a hydraulic braking system. Um, and the idea is if you've only got simple components like cables attached you're, you're, you don't need to carry any specialized tools with you or worry about, you know, not being able to replace something very specific. But yeah, it, I would say, I would say more or less bikepacking is done on a mountain bike that's designed to carry equipment. Bicycle touring is done on something, something closer to a hybrid, but again, a hybrid that's designed to carry a load well beyond that of a rider. Okay. Wow. Hydraulic disc brakes. I've been out before I was a hiker. Yeah. Um, I was a mountain biker and I remember when disc brakes first came out and my friend and I were so amazed and we dropped all this money on new bikes. And now that there's hi like hydraulic disc brakes, it just is a refresher for me in how quickly this technology, like all technology advances. You're basically now talking about a motorcycle without an engine. It's, it's getting to that point. I'm, I mean, there are, there are people who now tour on e-bikes. That's become a thing now. And there are writers and bloggers who are developing routes so that people who might not have the, the, the level of fitness 
or um, because of because of something like like disabilities or or you know other medical related issues, whatever it is, maybe they just don't want to you know ride them grind themselves into dust every day. People are coming up with routes where okay, you can camp here, 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 and here. This is your mileage totals for the day, and every day you'll be able to give the bike a full charge. So now uh, touring is becoming more and more accessible to everyone, which I which I like in that more people understand what it is that I enjoy so much. And a, and a small part of me is like, oh, well, it's not that special anymore. We can identify with that. And then right. you're dealing with, well, if people are using e-bikes, they're probably taking different routes than you do. I was going to say you're probably dealing with more people out there and potential overcrowding. But if people are planning their route around charging stations, that's probably different than what you do, I'm imagining. Yeah, that's that's definitely a factor. If you're riding an e-bike, if, if that's if that's a limiting factor to where you're touring, there's places I've gone you can never go. Which I which not to be exclusive, you know, not to be exclusionary, but I like that. I like that I've been places that have been remote. I like that I've been places where I've been the only person within a mile of of my you know, of my surroundings. Um, well, that really goes back that. to what you were saying about how this is for you exploring. It, it's not, it is about the riding, but it's also a large factor is exploring. So that totally fits in with that. That's absolutely. Yeah. Completely understandable. So, I'm sorry. I, that's okay. I mean, I, I kind of thought before we came on that crank, you would, be rather interested in this since you do have a history with uh, off-road biking. It's so. making me feel old though. <laughs> I haven't done that in almost five years and the technology is completely different. You can always um, pick it back up. That's right. <laughs> yes, for the low, low price of a minimum of $3,500 to get a Oh bike. yeah, no, it's not a cheap hobby, baby. No, not at all. Well, we're finding um, that with hiking, too. I mean, you can just get out there in your sneakers and walk, but, I mean, we like our creature comforts, and we get ultralight, and we, we you know, we want to walk right. faster, and we want to sleep comfortably, so that all adds up. Got to get those $50 titanium sports. That's, yeah. that's, that's the move right there, just titanium everything. Or, in your case, Frankie, I'm assuming it's carbon fiber everything. Carbon fiber. So on, so on road bikes, that's definitely the case. I don't have anything carbon fiber on any bike I own. Carbon fiber is really strong. It is. There's nothing lighter that you can put on a bike. It's what um, they use in Formula One cars. And, it is, it is yeah. what they use in Formula One cars. I'm very impressed you know that. Um, <laughs> Because that's that's uh, ironically one of one of my favorite things to to watch is something that destroys the environment that I love to see so much. But I don't have I don't have any carbon fiber on on my bike. But yeah, that's sort of the go to to make things weigh nothing. Um, and I'm sure I, I'm sure I could find something dumb to put on the bike. But carbon fiber shatters and doesn't bend. And uh, I've bent some stuff on the bike before and. Bending is, yeah, bending is better than shattering. Yeah. Yep. So my segues have been on point. They continue to be on point. I was waiting for you to go and segue that. Yep. To, for you to talk about your bike and your kit. And I know like with hikers, if you open that question up, like we could go for 35 minutes, but can you give us kind of the cliff notes version of 
what type of bike do you have, what accessories, and then just your basic kit, what do you take with you to survive? On, on, I mean, and I'm sure it does change, Frankie, if you're in the Pacific Northwest versus down in the, the southern states. So go for it. Okay, so my bike is a red 2019 Trek 520 disc. How I came to that bike, I spent a lot of time on a vintage Trek in my 20s, so I was always kind of partial to that brand. And the 520 is like the Ur touring bike. You know, now there's a lot of brands that produce touring models. You've got the Surly Long Haul Trucker, Salsa Marrakesh, Kona Sutra, Koga World Traveler, Specialized Daywall. All of these brands make it, but every bike, every popular touring frame is based on the bike that I have sitting behind me. Uh, I like to tour fully loaded, which means I carry everything I need with me. I have a tent, I have cooking gear, um, and I spend most of my nights sleeping outdoors. So my bike comes with a front and a rear rack uh, that shroud the front and rear wheels. And on both sides of the rack, I carry waterproof bags called... um, panniers it's a french word people all pronounce it however they want but word of the day kids right yeah i've heard pannier pannier we'll just say pannier it was also used in the 18th century for women that accentuated the hips so that does make sense (laughs) you know looking at how they sit on the bike i'm not surprised that that was the word they chose them (laughs) um so so I have, uh, I have four panniers. I have a set of, of rear panniers and a set of front panniers. And uh, So how much water would that be fully loaded? Oh, so the panniers, the panniers carry everything. The water goes somewhere else. Oh, okay. Water. So most bikes you see, they'll kind of have a triangle at the middle of the frame where you'll see people put water bottle cages, hold their bottles. Mm-hmm. That's fine for a day ride. If you're going to be out... If you're going to be out in the in the middle of nowhere, like you guys have experienced with hiking, you need to carry uh, you need to carry a bladder with you, some kind of dromedary yes. bag. So I went to a company in Arizona that custom makes uh, frame bags, uh, vel- bags that Velcro strap into the triangle of your frame. And I found a waterproof roll top frame bag and put it in, and I carry six liters of water in a bladder inside the center of the bike. Um, that was something I started doing after the first tour. And I specifically arrived at that solution because as you know, water is heavy and I needed something that could swing very easily to be as close to the center of balance of the bike as possible. And the only place that made sense to me was as low as you can get it between your legs. And that is where the frame bag came from. And it's worked out really, really well. And so, so I have, Rear panniers, front panniers, I have a frame bag, I have a handlebar bag. That's generally where all the most important stuff goes. Credit card, uh, bear, bear mace, knife, flashlight, snacks, you know, all, all things are very, very accessible. Right. I do have I do have water bottle cages that sit behind my handlebars. Uh, they velcro strap to them. Not a great solution on a road bike because it raises your center of gravity, but on a touring bike, it makes everything so convenient. 
And then on top of my rear rack in a dry sack, I strap my tent body, not the uh, not the poles, because I'm always afraid of tearing the, tearing the tent body up, and my sleeping bag. And all in all, I would say on the second trip, my bike probably oscillated between 90 and 110 pounds, depending on how much food and water I was carrying. That it's not too bad. I mean, I wouldn't want to hustle that up Skyline Drive, but yeah, for for a bike that seems pretty reasonable. Well done, sir. I, I, I appreciate it. It was substantially lighter on this last trip, and a part of that I think was I didn't need to worry about carrying cold weather gear, and there were some things that I realized I was doting around on the first trip that I knew I wouldn't need to use riding down the east coast like a water purifying pump right. I left that at home but yeah it's it's the gear is everything that you need to sleep make your own food if you get injured i have a first aid kit um if i have to ride at night i can do that if i have to fight a bear i'll at least give it a shot you know he'll get he'll get a he'll get an eyeful of mace and, and a knife and a knife in the back you are in a better position if you encounter a bear than we are <laughs> because you can pedal away we have to bang trekking poles together and pray yeah i don't i don't envy that but um, <laughs> well, i'm looking i want to see one oh he's been dying to see one for years and i'm like we're, i'm happy seeing yes. a bear from the car I saw a bear on the first tour, and I saw a bear on the third tour. And the first one was big enough that I don't think I ever needed to see one again. And then on the last one, I saw a little cub. I thought it was a dog, and I yelled at it, and it ran away. And that was it. How close were you to the first one? 25 feet. Nice. I I I was in a campground with my cousin in Glacier National Park in Montana. Well, there you go. Yep. I mean, and we're eating breakfast. There are a dime a dozen there. Yeah, we're we're eating breakfast, and um, I was having like oatmeal with chocolate syrup in it because I I didn't care what I ate on that trip. I just we we were burning, we were riding so much every day. I would eat whatever I wanted, which uh, that's hard to turn that switch off once you get home, as I'm sure you know. And I was putting. You know, like the first the first spoonful up to my mouth and I can hear someone's voice in the distance saying, uh, go back inside your tents and zip them shut. And I watch a bear that weighed at least 200 pounds run through the campground so and I run to my tent. And I'm, static. You weren't right. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, we were it was breakfast at at our at our tent site. And uh, we just watched a bear run on through, and it was, it was, it was over before. I feel like you had time to be really scared, but it was uh, that's that spooked me pretty bad. I've I've never seen other than a buffalo. I'd never seen an animal that big up close with no defense, with no protection against. That's crazy. Um, I mean, yeah. well, let's backtrack a little bit and go a little bit east to the beginning of your first tour so this bear story happened during your first cross-country tour right so where did you start your first bike touring adventure okay so earlier i brought up my cousin and uh, my cousin quinn and i had to do that because 
how I've ended up on the trajectory that I have. First tour, um, and then the subsequent two is entirely his fault. So, so if he's someone, listening to this now, it's all of his fault. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sure he knows. Uh, I don't know if he takes any pride in it, but Quinn made this happen. So the summer of 2018, uh, I get an email from, from my cousin, and he says he's planning to ride his bicycle across America. And he extends to me an invitation to join him. So I get this email and I look it over and he's already planned a whole route. He already knows exactly what we need. All I have to do is buy a bike and some gear and train and show up. And I thought, how, how do you say no to that? Oh, you know, it's, it's a lot of people have really ambitious ideas. And I feel like the thing that holds them back the most is they got the big picture, but finding all the steps. And in this instance, really all I had to do was say yes and keep up. And, and it was the opportunity to do something with my cousin that I knew would be incredible. And it was one of the things I enjoyed doing the most. So March of 2020, I started training at the, uh, the gym that I worked at. I just get off shift and take classes that my coworkers taught. Interestingly, I didn't do any training really on a bike before this trip. Literally, I kind of walked away from riding for a while because I got into strength training in a gym because I worked at one. And as a result, when this first trip started, my legs hurt a lot for the first two weeks, but I was able to, I was able to get through it. So the first trip for me was from Minneapolis, Minnesota to Seattle, Washington. Quinn's journey was a full coast to coast. He left his house in Glen Rock, New Jersey. We grew up in the same town and he rode all the way out to Ruby Beach in Olympic National Park. Um, And then the journey ended in Seattle because we ended up circling the the Olympic Peninsula and Seattle's an easy place to fly home from. So I joined him in Minnesota because the kind of work that I do outside of working at a gym The early summer is the big money season. And so I made a point to go over his itinerary with him. And he had a pretty good idea of where he would be every two to three days because he's a very good planner. He's a a very detail-oriented person. And what I realized was the latest I could really join him um, and still take a direct flight and not miss any of the good stuff because I really wanted to ride out west. I didn't care about riding through New York State or, um, you know, even Ontario. You know, it would have been cool to ride in Canada, but it's it's not that much different from where we live anyway. Um, you know, I, I had all these delusions of grandeur about craggy mountains and the Red Rock Desert. So June 22nd, I was performing as an entertainer at a wedding, and June 23rd, I was on a plane to... Minneapolis, Minnesota, to ride that day 50 miles south of the city and meet him in camp in a state park in a tent that I had never opened. And uh, so that's where it all started, uh, June 23rd, 2019, in the pouring rain. Of it course. Was, oh. Of course. Uh, and that was the, I remember, I remember distinctly, the one thing I did not want to do the first day of this trip was ride in the rain. And I rode in the rain into the darkness and I hated it but I got to the end of it knowing it can't really get 
more unpleasant than this. And if you made it through this day, you're going to make it to the end of this trip. Nothing will stop you. Now you yeah, said- and it's the same attitude as I think most adventure sports. Well, all adventure sports people need to have that attitude. Like if you quit on a bad day, you're not going to want to do it again ever. So, so you know, that's the golden rule. You can't quit on a bad yeah. day. So pushing through is absolutely essential. But yeah, that riding in the rain, especially in your first day, that's absolutely brutal. Yeah, it just I don't love riding in the rain. I never have. Who, you get cold. Who does, honestly? You get soggy. But if you're on a tour, you have to do it. And uh, once you get to the end of the day, it's generally, you get over it. So from on your day-to-day, what was your average mileage and when would you usually start your day? The first trip was definitely different from the other two because I wasn't, because it was summer and the days were really long, I was not very disciplined about getting up early. Mm-hmm. My cousin's a very uh, early to bed, early to rise person. And I generally would not get out of my tent until the sun had hit the tent and made it so hot I could not sleep in it any longer. <laughs> and his goal was always to average 50 miles a day depending on the terrain you know you're riding flatland with a tailwind we're going to ride 70 miles today you're riding with a brutal headwind which there was more than one day that was the case you might only ride 25 or 30 miles that day you know you've got undulating terrain somewhere in the middle a lot of times what ultimately dictated our itinerary for the day was where's the next place we can sleep now i'm not so bothered about the idea of stealth camping because i've i've done some of that i've i've camped on land that was either bureau of land management land or was private land and i just knew i wouldn't get caught which is easy in the southwest but for that first trip with my cousin we were we were pretty adamant that we wanted to camp places that we knew we would have access to bathrooms, access to electricity, or at least places where people wouldn't know where to find us. So oftentimes it would be, we're going to ride 70 miles today because that's the next place we can really sleep. And we would. But so, go ahead. When we're hiking, a lot of times we're in close proximity and, and we're talking, but there are times when we split up and, um, a lot of hikers do this in a group that there are times when you split up and you don't see each other till the end of the day. Is it kind of like that or how does the dynamic of riding with someone else long distance work? So the first, the trip with my cousin, he generally had a role that we need to be able to see each other. Um, okay. And that, and that was largely a safety concern yeah. because you're riding on public roads, things that are entirely out of your control, like, cars not so much wildlife but but uh, but other forms of transportation someone could make a silly mistake and and ruin your day uh or you could end up with a flat tire and once that happens you could be stuck still for 30 minutes and changing changing touring tires is not always very easy because their construction is very is very strong and durable it's very hard to get them on and off a rim. So if someone has to stop for more than 10 minutes, you may never see them again in a day. And if they have a bigger problem, they may never be able to get to you. So I, I, I would say riding in a group, splitting up when there's the opportunity to 
get lost, get hit by cars, have mechanical problems that you can't solve yourself. My, my cousin is a bicycle mechanic. I am not. And he's bailed me out on more than one occasion. Yeah, I, I would say as a general rule, everybody's got to stay within, within eyesight of one another. Okay. Yeah, that philosophy is very different than the hiking philosophy. I mean, there are groups who hike that have that rule or stick together, but generally a lot of times on long-distance trails, groups will just split up for, I'll see you at camp, I'll see you at the next shelter. But that makes total sense since you have completely different factors like cars and such. So, awesome. Um, I, I think that makes sense to me. You know, one, one of the things that I dealt with on this last trip, I took a couple friends with me for the first, some of them came for the first few days, some of them came for the first week and a half. We we can get into the stories therein uh, a little later. But one of the issues that I ran into is that, it, you know, not everybody has the same skill set. Uh, not everybody's going to know the route as well as I am. P- potentially, you could get lost. Not everybody can fix their own bike. And when, you, when you've got that big disparity in the, the, you know, uh, the ability to be self-supporting, which I think may be more of an issue among cyclists than hikers, because if you're, if you're going to go hiking, you need to be, you need to be prepared to you know, be a one-person army. If you go riding with a group, you could be literally someone who only knows how to push pedals and provided nothing bad happens to you, you can do literally everything everyone else does. So yeah, I, I, I can see why there would be why there would be a distinction there. But sometimes it is nice to be alone, sure. I mean, so- overall, did you, you you mentioned some of these worst case scenarios. Did you experience any of these during your first tour? Uh obstacles, big or small? Yes. So the the biggest obstacle that I ran into on the first trip and I would probably say every trip um, has been the weather. Yeah, the the first trip was a was a summer trip, so there was a lot of scalding hot days where you were drinking a gallon or more of water while you were on the bike. A uh, couple stormy nights that were a little scary. Uh, some days with really really brutal headwinds. At times there was some really challenging terrain. But uh, the terrain, I I almost would say, doesn't count that much because that's why you're out there. You know, some of the steepest roads I've ever climbed are the Black Hills in South Dakota. Also, some of the best views I've ever seen. But but there's a couple sort of standout obstacles. About two weeks into my first trip, my cousin and I collided with each other outside of Badlands National Park. I had just come over a crest. We were riding a farm road next to Interstate 90. And I came over this crest and it was the first time I had seen any of the Badlands. So you've got all that rock that looks like the surface of Mars. And at this point, we had been riding this farm road that paralleled the highway for like two or three days. Mm-hmm. So we could just ride in the middle of the road, didn't have to didn't have to look behind us or in front of us at anything and looking at your phone while you're while you're on the bike. And, and you know, you don't have a care in the world. So I stopped in the middle of the road in awe of this to take a picture and Quinn comes over the crest and sees the same thing. But instead of stopping, he just pulls out his camera phone and puts it in front of his face. And 
hits me from behind at about 15 miles an hour. And I watched my cousin go over my right shoulder over his handlebars. And I thought, oh, this, I've ruined the trip. Uh, He's going to have a broken collarbone, ribs, arm, wrist. His bike will be destroyed. My bike will be destroyed. Um, And amazingly, this kid, probably because he's, he was what, 22 at the time and weighs nothing. Um, didn't he break flew, any bones. Basically, yes. Right. <laughs> he, he flew and bounced off the hard, hot, dry asphalt. He got a big cut on his on his chin, which he eventually got sutured a couple days later, actually. But somehow the bikes the bikes both survived. I mean, his wheel was bent and he had to true it, and his fork, I think, is still bent to this day. It's just never made that much of a difference in how the bike rides. I bent, I bent my chainstay. I bent the back of the bike, and it wasn't shifting right for a few days. But it worked just well enough that I was able yep. to ride five more days until we got to a real bike shop, and then they were able to straighten the frame. A lot of people argue online about uh, what material to make frames out of, and they do make they do make carbon fiber touring frames, but they're not really serviceable. And they do make aluminum frames, which are lighter than steel, but you can basically crash them once, and if you don't bend them back right the first time, you have to throw it out. A steel bike, you can smash up again and again and again. And fortunately, Vixen is steel. So they were able to bend it back, and it worked well the rest of the trip. Um, but I would say weather was a big obstacle. You know, me- mechanical issues happened occasionally. You get flats here and there. Both of us were fortunate that neither of us broke a chain, but we yes. carried components <laughs> for that. There's there's one night there's one night in um, kind of to put to put a to put a period on on weather being an obstacle. There's only one time in my life where I've really thought this this might be it. This might be you might be about to die, and uh, that was in a tent after midnight in Murdo, South Dakota. Um, my cousin and I were riding across South Dakota as fast as we could to get to the Badlands. This is this is two days before we run into each other. Um, we ride until the sunset. We get into this town. Murdo is a great name for a town, by the way. Yeah, yeah, it's it's I great or not, it's one I'll never forget. Um, there's not much there to see, so we get to Murdo and. There is nowhere to stay except a Super 8 motel. And both of us are cheap and not going to spend whatever it costs to spend a night in a hotel when we should be perfectly fine outside. So this was the, this might have been the only time we stealth camped on this trip, actually. We wait for the sun to go down. We made dinner uh, on, you know, at a baseball field, like a, like a, peewee baseball field and then we camped on the other side of trees right on the edge of town put the tents down went to bed and about eleven forty-five at night my cousin runs over to my tent he's banging on the tent door saying you have to restake your tent and we have to lay the bikes flat right now and i get out of my tent and i look up in the sky and something bad is coming because there's lots of lightning and and clouds that are interesting shapes so we restake the tents and put the bike, lay the bikes flat, and I get back in my tent 
and I put on my eye mask and put in my um, earplugs and tell myself, all right, you're going to be fine. I'm going to, I'm going to sleep through this. Then the rain starts and the, and the rain's pretty loud. And then the hail starts and the hail is too loud to ignore. And then the wind starts. And when I started to get really worried was when one of the stakes that held my rain fly into the ground got ripped out. And then the other side got ripped out. Now the rain fly is pressed against the tent and there is water coming up into the tent, I guess because of air pressure. So now I've got, now I've got water slipping under the rain fly and over the base of the tent body into the tent next to me. And then the wind starts to get strong enough that it starts to collapse the tent on top of me. So I'm now sitting up in my sleeping bag, shivering, using both arms, holding the tent, trying to keep its shape so that, because I'm, I'm terrified that it's going to pick up in the wind. And it was right around that time that it was so loud and there was this strobe light of lightning coming through the tent at me that I thought, at the other end of this is a tornado. And you, at this point, you you can't run from it. There's nowhere you can get to. Yeah, you're going to. You're you, you're probably you're probably going to die if there is a tornado and it gets to you and there's nothing you can do about it. And I remember having this moment where it was just, you can't panic right now because you can't change the outcome. Whatever's going to happen, you can't change it. So just get to the next minute. And it felt like forever, but in reality, it was only about probably an hour and 15 minutes that I was sitting up with my arms pressed against my tent, trying to keep it from collapsing on top of me and just hoping that what felt inevitable wouldn't happen. And so you reached that point of acceptance, which is a very scary place to be. Um, fortunately, I don't think we've ever been there. I don't ever want to be there, but uh, that sounds absolutely horrific, dude. It, it, I mean, it left a lasting impression. It, um, I didn't sleep outside for like the next five days. I made a point for the next five days that everywhere we got to, um, I spoke to someone in person and told them a couple of days ago, I camped outside in a storm that I thought was going to kill me. I can't do it again. Um, I cold called churches in... Kadoka, South Dakota, where the mayor let me into the Lutheran church. Thank you, sir. Mayor Harry, <laughs> never forget him. I stayed at a church in Interior, which is the one town inside of Badlands National Park. I want to say it was Pastor Kevin who let me in. And then um, I stayed in a Catholic church in Wall, South Dakota. And then I was fortunate that uh, my cousin and I met some, some fellow adventurers who put us up in their home in... Rapid City, South Dakota, but yeah, that's that was that was scary, and it left a lasting impression on me. It really did. I would be checking the weather all day, every day. I bet uh, from that point forward to make sure that we weren't going to get caught in a storm, and if and if that looked likely that we could find a place to stay indoors. I've never, I haven't been that scared on a bike since. And that, well, there's nothing you could do. So, like the storm just rolls over and eventually things calm down or what was the resolution? I'm assuming that that's what it was. Yeah, it was, you know, after, after about an hour, it started to get quieter and the, and the wind wasn't pushing so hard on my arms and eventually the hail stopped 
And I got to the point where I realized, I guess I'm not going to die tonight. At which point I shout to my cousin, who's in his own tent. Yeah, uh, how 15, is he feeling throughout yeah, all of this? 15 feet away, I ask him, Quinn, are you still alive? And and he was like, oh, I'm so sorry. And it was very clear he'd been crying. And we were just we just talked about how scary that was. And I asked him, you know, how how fucked up is your tent? And he was like, it's it's holding together. And the the poles on my tent, which I've actually since given to a friend, um, were permanently bent by that night. Not much, but enough that you could tell they didn't come that way. Right. And uh, finally, once it had gotten quiet enough and I and I realized it, this intense euphoria set in and I was singing. Rage Against the Machine and Pearl Jam songs along with my, you know, off my iPhone at four o'clock in the morning and no one, you know, I, whether anyone could hear me or not, I didn't care. And then the next morning we went into the diner in town and I ordered anything and everything I wanted to celebrate being alive. All right. So that ends part one of our interview with Frankie Wilde and his bike touring across America. Stay tuned for part two coming out next week where Frankie talks more about his adventures in the Southwest and down the Appalachian Mountains.